And we're continuing our series all about experiencing God through the lens of Ezekiel the prophet, who uh, by all accounts had a very unique experience with God, yet one that uh, gives us a preview and gave his generation a preview of what it really is like uh, to walk hand in hand with Jesus in a personal relationship. As we've been talking the last couple of weeks, God came to Ezekiel where he was, found him where he thought he couldn't be found and where God would never be found. And we learned last week that God showed Ezekiel and God showed the nation of Israel that he was a God that we can know. He's a God, a personal God that we can have a personal relationship with. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I would love for you to open up with me to Ezekiel 36 this morning. We're going to read uh, in our opening uh, moment from verses 22 through 36, a little lengthy passage, but I want to read it up front to kind of set the stage for what I believe is going to be a really awesome and uh, encouraging conversation. I think God's going to break some people free from some bondage and some baggage maybe you've been carrying around for a while. Maybe you didn't realize it was baggage. Maybe you didn't realize that you had some chains that you were still dragging around. But, but I think today God might uh, just uh, reveal that and, and also save you, save somebody uh, from some of that that's holding them back and, and maybe uh, giving, them, giving you difficulty about which step is next for you to take. So Ezekiel 36, we'll begin in verse 22. And read through 36. Also, uh, if you want to put a bookmark in Galatians 4, we'll turn there in a little while. Uh, Galatians 4, that's pretty easy to find about midway through the New Testament. But if you want to go ahead and put a bookmark there, that would be, that'd be great. But if you found your place in Ezekiel, this is God's word through Ezekiel to the nation of Israel. And God's telling him what to say, which you'll see very uh, quickly up front here. Verse 22, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord. So there's that call back to last week. When I am hallowed in you before their eyes, for I will take you from among the nations and gather you out of all countries and bring you back or bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. I will take this heart of stone and out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh." I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. I will deliver you from your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. I will multiply the fruit of your trees and increase your fields so that you need never bear again the reproach of famine among the nations." Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. For your sake, not for your sake do I do this, says the Lord. Let it be known to you, be ashamed and confounded for all your ways. O house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, on the day that I will cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities and ruins shall be rebuilt the desolate land shall be tilled instead of the lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. So they will say, this land was desolate, but has become like the garden of Eden. And the wasted, desolate, ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. 
Then the nations which are left all around you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it and I will do it. What an awesome, not just word from God, but promise and proclamation that I, I think God is wanting to speak into somebody's heart today. Uh, but just a little bit about what he's been doing in my life lately. Uh, always care to hear about me, don't you? No, this past week I turned 32. I'm not really sure what I think about it. It doesn't really feel that much different than the last couple of years. I think ever since about 28, 29, I've kind of felt like I'm going downhill. Uh, so uh, this is just another slide down the slope. Uh, no, uh, heartburn's getting worse. I have to take a few more times. I don't take my daily medicine, so it catches up to me about midnight. Um, now, that is funny, Tammy. I, do it, I did it to myself, years and years of, of eating bad things. And I'm only 32, so I'm trying to do better now. I've learned my lesson uh, a little bit. But <laughs> I ate the greasiest pizza Friday night. I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, so I haven't learned my lesson. Uh, yeah, I haven't learned. Anyway, heartburn's getting worse. Um, I, have, I have to shave more frequently, which is what most people start to deal with at age 18, but I'm finally, it's finally catching up to me at 32. So maybe by 40, I'll be able to not have the spottiness that I, I have by the end of the day. Um, my, my knees give out every once in a while, but that's because 20 years ago, which I can't believe it's been 20 years, but 20 years ago, I, I fell and got hurt. And, and now my knee likes to, to, to remind me of that a little bit more than it used to. Uh, but, but I digress. So thank you to, to all the birthday wishes. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, and really my life's pretty good. So that was just me embellishing some of the, some of the challenges that I have. Uh, anybody that knows me knows that I'm a little bit of a challenge to buy stuff for, uh, I, not that I'm asking for anything, but my family, you, you can talk to them. I'm a little bit of an enigma when it comes to, you know, what, what do you buy him? Now, I have a lot of stuff, so it's not like I need anything, but uh, I, I don't talk about what I'm interested in to a lot of people. So uh, the people that do know me know that I'm a little bit, uh, know that I'm weird enough that it's hard to go and buy something for me. But I, I, I feel bad. Lindsay used to, she learned pretty quickly, she used to try to explain to her family what I would like. And now she just says, get him a card. He'll appreciate it because I think she just doesn't want to explain to them, uh, doesn't want to go down the rabbit hole of, well, he's kind of into this stuff, and, and that's probably a little bit uh, head-scratching. Um, but most of you know the, the things that I'm into, and, and while there's plenty of new things out there that I love to buy, and I, I really appreciate, um, what I love to buy more than anything probably is old stuff. And, and sometimes the stuff's older than me, but usually the stuff is, you know, from when I was younger and didn't have the means to get it back then. Um, so when I get extra cash or when I get some, some gift cards or something, uh, I really like to buy, you know, pre-owned, used, and pretty old things and it maybe makes you think what's wrong with him but we'll, it'll, it'll get worse just hang on um, but uh, and as you might would, would expect I like to buy things um, off uh, off the internet and, and specifically uh, eBay now eBay has been uh, it's over 25 years old at this point uh, but some of you probably are pretty familiar with the concept it's, it's not unlike other auction sites uh, that, that work in the same way and, and I guess the actual inspiration for eBay is real life auctions that you can go to and you know raise a little sign and all that stuff uh, and I, maybe the better analog is is, uh, yard sales or flea markets because if you want to buy something used or old or halfway broken just go to a yard sale right um, but not not your yard sales y'all probably uh, always pass along good things but right uh, you know yard sales and flea markets are kind of like you know the the original version of eBay. Now, yard sales require going out when it's still wet, when the grass is still wet, and I don't like doing that, and uh, I don't really care for fleas. So eBay 
has always, that's not even funny, eBay has always been uh, what's worked best for me. Now, I think my eBay account uh, goes back uh, till I was, I think I was like 13 or 14 when I made my eBay account, um, which uh, thankfully I've got the same one so I can go back and just see, wow, I think I bought that thing twice. I didn't realize it. Uh, But um, uh, yeah, it goes back about 13 years. When I was 13 years old, uh, my grandmother and her stepdaughter had come over one summer afternoon and um, I was upset at mom for, I used to get upset at mom for throwing away things that I wanted to keep. And uh, th- this still happens. And Lindsay has, the, the spirit has descended upon Lindsay. Sometimes throws away stuff that uh, I, mean, I was going to, I wanted to keep that. And it was literally falling apart. Um, but no, mom threw away some old magazines that uh, I, I wanted to keep. And, and uh, uh, my, my, uh, my aunt or my, my step aunt, um, Linda, she, she turns to me and she says, have you ever heard of eBay? And, and I can't, I, that, that moment in time, I'm like, no, I've never heard of that. So, so I go right to my computer and, uh, you know, within 10 minutes, I've made an account and I've placed my first order. Uh, so talk about sharing the gospel and ripple effects just changing your life. You know, from that moment, she says, hey, have you ever heard of this? Uh, man, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time and, and a little bit of money uh, based on that suggestion uh, from back in like 2003 or four. Uh, now, back in the day, it was pretty rough because you had to send in a check and then you had to wait for the check to clear. So you would order something on, you know, one week and it would take a month and a half to get your, uh, to get whatever you ordered. And it would come looking, you know, after it would be bounced around in the mail for that long, it, it kind of came looking worse than it really already looked. Um, now, that was a really revelatory moment for me as I began to discover that there were thousands of things on the internet that you couldn't easily buy in a regular store, whether they were out of print, discontinued, or just no longer popular. And they were just waiting for me, and many of you, if, if you're into this kind of stuff, they were just waiting for, for people like me to go and, and buy them. Uh, and, and if you've ever enjoyed going to markets or shopping secondhand stores, you'll understand where I'm coming from, that someone else's trash is a treasure to you. And of course, there's the Facebook group, One Man's Junk, because that's the idea, right? What's junk to me might be a treasure to you. What's a treasure, uh, what, what's, a junk, what's trash to you, it could be a treasure to me. And people ask me all the time uh, when I'm buying old tech or collectibles or, or shirts or hats, why, do you, why don't you just buy new stuff? And, and my response is, I can't buy this stuff new. They don't make it anymore. And yeah, there may be a new version of it, uh, but whatever it is, uh, to me, there's something about the retro stuff that's still valuable to me. Now to you, to most people, it's just old used stuff. But to me, it's more than that. In my hands, it becomes something much more. And, And maybe the same for you. In your hands, something that I think is just completely silly and worthless. In your hands, it becomes something more. Now, when you see something for sale for whatever price, most people think, what the heck? Who would pay that for that? But the thing about when you're, when you're selling something secondhand, uh, it, it, you never sell it for what you think it's worth. You sell it for the price that you think someone else will think it's worth. You follow me? That the seller puts a price tag on an item that they're convinced someone else is willing to pay. They may think it's worthless. Again, they're, giving it, they're trying to get rid of it. Of course, it doesn't mean anything to them but they're selling it for the price that they think someone else will assign it. The secret to selling things anywhere, secondhand or on eBay, is you never price it based on what it's worth to you. You price it based on what it could be worth to somebody else. See, when I get a package in the mail, I, I love, you know, Lindsay's responses are always kind of non-pulsed and, and bewildered because uh, she's not really sure what to think of it. Um, sometimes 
I, uh, I, I, I open a package that's uh, a t-shirt. I like NASCAR, and sometimes I go and I try to find these old retro shirts. And I think by the picture, I think the picture, that looks like it'll fit me, even though it says extra large, and you know, I'm kind of a, a small medium. But sometimes I open a shirt and I'm thinking, this looks fun, this looks nice, doesn't it? And Lindsay looks at me and she says, you're never walking out of the house in that. Now, I, I, I wear this, I, you know, I, I even got ashamed of wearing this to bed. Um, it feels, it's one of those shirts with the iron on, it's kind of really heavy and, it, and it's awful. But when I paid $35 for this, uh, um, I thought it would be a really cool, you know, I had a gift card, don't worry, I don't waste money like that. Uh, uh, I, uh, when, I, when I bought this, I thought, well, that's really cool. And my grandmother's from Del- near Dawsonville, Georgia, so my, my you know, family's connected to Bill Elliott. But, um, I, you know, I thought, hey, I thought that was cool, but when I actually got it and opened it, I thought maybe that was a little bit of a, of a risky purchase, right? But that's the thing. When you see something that, on eBay, you, you never know what it's actually going to be like when you get it. Now, I've got some pretty cool racing and, and, and you know, Disney World. I, I buy a lot of old shirts, from, you know, retro shirts like that. Uh, unfortunately, that one didn't really measure up to my expectations. Uh, but I'll be honest, though, even if that purchase may suggest that I, I have a hard time saying no to things, um, sometimes, sometimes I see things and I'm dumbfounded. I think to myself, who would buy that? says the person that just bought a McDonald's shirt from 1995 for $35. Um, I, I know my moral authority is in question, but seriously, maybe this is how you feel all the time when you talk to people like me, you know, thankfully y'all don't see the rest of my stuff. Maybe you think like I've thought before, who wants that old stuff? Who would spend actual money for that? But even the most used up, outdated and re- irrelevant item in the right person's hands it's worth something. Perhaps much more than we could ever imagine. Perhaps to some people, it's priceless. What may appear useless and undesirable to most people is worth a great deal and can serve a great purpose to some, even if it's just someone. Now to put this in more real world application for some of you uh, that maybe haven't understood what I babbled on about for a few minutes, while flea markets and eBay are, are mostly filled with things that serve pretty a niche market, uh, we're all familiar with salvage yards. A salvage yards were, were a place where a disused or a vehicle or parts of an old machine are scattered about all, uh, all for resale. And they can be purchased and, and they can be you know, uh, repaired or rebuilt in, in the right hands. So they're up for resale so that they can be salvaged. Now, when we hear the word salvage, we sort of have an impression that the, the quality is a little lower than ideal, right? When you hear the word salvage, you think, oh, I don't know if that's what I really want put, you know, to uh, put my dependence on. You know, if you look at the Carfax report on a vehicle that says salvage, it's going to come with some baggage. It's going to be hard to get any insurance for it probably. Uh, and, and maybe there's some reservation, you know, oh, it's the one that I wanted, but it's been salvaged and I don't know if I should really spend that kind of money on it. Unless, of course, it's a car that, you know, you put your own sweat and tears into and, you know, like a classic car expert, you can take something that once was rusted and given to the, the, the dumpster and, and you restore it to something that it looks brand new. Uh, the, the paperwork may say salvaged, but in the right hands, there's not a negative or a lesser thing about it. In the right hands, in the right person, there's an extra special meaning to it. That you've taken something that was considered junk and reworked it into a gem. And at that point, I think there's a better word 
to classify something than salvage because salvage carries that negative weight. Just like the things you buy at an auction or secondhand that meant nothing to the seller, but was exactly what you were looking for. The thing goes from trash to treasure, storage container to center shelf in your hands. Salvage isn't the right word because it's not barely hanging on the value in your hands. In your hands, it's been rescued and can finally be appreciated for what it's truly worth, the right and real value. In your hands, that thing has been redeemed. And maybe you were the only person that that thing was made for, but to you, it finally met its true purpose. To you and in your hands, it finally reached its full appreciated value. Now, redeemed or redemption is the word that we talk a lot about a lot in church within all the different angles of Christianity, usually in step with salvation. Maybe you, you drew the conclusion that the two words are interchangeable, that uh, salvation and redemption kind of mean the same thing. And unfortunately, that's really not the case. In, in any given song and sermon, you can hear the back and forth, salvation, redemption, and how they're used to, con- to define the conversion and faith. But we often don't talk about the full meaning of what it means to be redeemed, what it really means for something to find redemption. I don't think it's hyperbolic uh, to say it pretty emphatically that we don't talk enough about what makes Christian salvation distinct from other proposed religious ideals of salvation. The thing, the thing that makes Christian salvation stand apart is this concept of redemption. This is why actually maybe better than you've often assumed or been told that it was. In many ways, I think it can be said that the version or explanation of salvation we're often told and maybe are familiar with is missing the true message of redemption. I make the distinction of Christian salvation. Uh, Our salvation uh, is, is inseparable from the word redemption. But in the Bible, there are often, there are other models, there are other ideas of salvation presented that were ultimately replaced with the Christian message of salvation. Maybe if you've read the Old Testament enough, you know that the nation of Israel understood salvation much differently than we do. That to Israel, salvation simply meant, hey God, we're in trouble. We need you to come bail us out. We're falling off a cliff. We need you to come catch us. Maybe even lower the floor for us so that we don't fall any farther. For Israel, salvation was really just an insurance plan. For Israel, salvation was at what we would call a bailout salvation. They got into trouble, they asked God to bail them out and they would say thank you, but they would go right back to doing what they were doing that got them into trouble. For Israel, they did not really believe that salvation would make them better. They just believed that salvation would prevent them or protect them from the consequences of their foolish decisions. Salvation was an insurance plan. Oh, I had a wreck. Call the agent, he'll take care of it. But I'm gonna go back to doing whatever I just did. I'll get in another car and do the same foolish things and maybe I'll wreck again, but I've got insurance, I'll be okay. That salvation to them was a bailout pr- a promise. If we get in a mess, God's gonna bail us out and he'll get us back to where we fell off from that it was about protecting them from the consequences of their sin. But there's no understanding in the Old Testament of salvation that actually improves their lives. And here's why. 
God had a covenant with Israel and God promised Israel, I'm gonna keep you in your land no matter what. You can mess up, you can, you can blow it, you can waste it, you can, make a big, you can make a disaster out of it, but I'm gonna keep you in your land. I promised Abraham, I promised Moses, I promised David. So the people that came from after their generations, they just lived it up because they believed that they could do whatever they wanted to do and they always would have God to bail them out. They had God's law and God's law taught them how they could do better and be better. But as they tried to obey God's law, it wasn't working. And maybe, maybe that was the point. And that's exactly what God was trying to communicate to them. God set all this in motion so that they would learn that they would never overcome sinfulness by mere obedience or obedience to the law. That there was a greater problem in their hearts, but God was gonna let Israel figure this out and the example of Israel is in the Old Testament so that we can see it for ourselves that nobody is going to get to God on their own based on their own goodness because there's always a uh, there's something in us that's going to keep us from getting there it was all to serve a point of contrast for an age to come but it was during Ezekiel's generation that God started moving things forward towards a better age where God decided that he wasn't gonna bail them out anymore because God finally decided he was time to show them that that covenant, that idea of salvation wasn't really salvation after all. It was time for them to learn that there was a better plan on the way. So when Babylon invaded Israel for the very first time, God decided not to save them. From it. You can read all throughout the Old Testament. Every time the enemies besieged the nation of Israel, something miraculous happened. Uh, 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 they heard a rumor uh, of another invasion and an angel would come through and sweep, you know, sw- slay the 185,000 Assyrians. You can read stories like that on page after page. God bailed Israel out from every enemy that came against her, except this time. God decided not to to save Israel. In fact, he sent them into bondage. He put them into slavery. According to the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, God announced that he was voiding the covenant. And this is important for us to hear. God announced he was voiding the covenant that he made through Moses. He was voiding the covenant. The bailout plan would no longer be in motion, would no longer be activated. And in exchange, he was gonna write and instate a new and better covenant. We read this in our text last week. God said in Ezekiel 16, I am going, I will establish for you an everlasting covenant as in the one I'm ripping up in front of you was temporary. It wasn't working. So I decided to end it. But many thought, why do we need a new one? This idea of you pulling us off the cliff has worked out for a long time, God. Why didn't you just bail us out? Why couldn't you just prevent them or distract them or destroy them? I mean, why didn't you just leave us in the land? The reason why is because they had perpetuated for too long, wallowing in their sin, trying to justify themselves by works of the law, and it was not working. But I think a lot of us, 
have understood Christianity that way. That it's just this cycle of, well, I'm gonna try to do better, but then I mess up and I ask God to forgive me. I come back next week, I did the bad thing again, but I'm here, God, could you forgive me? There are institutions of Christianity that work that way, right? It's the sin cycle. I sin, I confess. I sin, I confess. If that's how you understand Christianity, let me just make a plea to you. It's better than that. It's better than that. That religious model was ripped up by God in front of his people 2,500 years ago. God put an end to that useless model a long time ago and he used Israel to show us that it never actually worked and it didn't really save anybody. So God decided to rewrite the terms and make a better covenant. One that didn't simply bail people out more than a bailout, one that would buy people back from sin and build them up and make them better from the inside out. This was the great challenge Ezekiel faced when communicating God's word to his generation. Honestly, it was brand new to him as well. Ezekiel's generation was looking for the same old bailout salvation, but they did not realize what they really needed was redemption. There's a difference. One of the greatest passages in the Bible which foreshadows the work that God would do through Jesus for all of us is found in our opening read, Ezekiel 36, 20 through 22 through 36. And the heart of this passage is verse 26 through 27. Years and years of them cycling through sin and repeating the process, God says to them in verse 26, I am gonna give you a new heart and I'm gonna put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a new heart. And when he says heart of flesh, it's not referring to the sinful nature, it's referring to one that actually beats and actually pumps blood through you and actually gives you what you need because the old one's not working. I'm gonna put my spirit within you and calls you, that's important, calls you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and you will do them. And and here's here's major, major, major news for us to hear today. Because for a lot of us, Christianity is just a category. It's a box you checked when you were a young person. You were five, you were 12, you were however old, before you went to college, came back from college. It's a box you checked. You went through the motions, you prayed a prayer, you went through the the process, you went through the ritual, you did all the things your church told you to do, you put that away, but you know what? You've just been through this cycle years and years and years since then in this, to God, to you, God's just a bailout plan. You have an insurance card, you have a, a, a medical card, you have a God card. You're gonna pull it out when you need it one day. And you pull it out every once in a while and you beg him. And usually, usually he is so merciful, he bails you out in a minute. But the next week, you find yourself back where you told God, I would never be again, right? God, I'll never do that again. But here you are again doing it. Come on, how many of us have been there? God, I'll never if you help. And he helps, but we do it again. How many times has he bailed out your friendships, your relationships, your marriages? How many times has he bailed out, has he bailed out your finances, your, your, your situation and, and, and just in any aspect of life? God bails you out. You said, I never will again, yet you still do it again because that thing in you has not been treated. If Christianity is a category for you, I, I just wanna make an appeal to you that it's better than that. 
And Ezekiel tells a generation of people that thought God was just a policy, that thought he was just an agent, that thought he would just do what whatever, you know, whatever they thought was best and he would always check in with them. But Ezekiel makes it clear in this passage. The work of salvation is more than just a categorical change for us. According to Ezekiel, it's a cardiological change. According to Ezekiel, it's a heart change. According to Ezekiel, according to God, it is a heart transplant. That something inside of us changes because God does something, not because we do anything. By faith in what God promises, God does a work. And that's what verse 26 is all about. And the rest of the passage is a metaphor uh, about what life is like once God changes our hearts. He refers to them getting back in the land, the land growing up with fruit, the land being blessed. But the land is a metaphor for people, for you and me, our lives getting taken back to where they always were meant to be at. In verse 35, it says that they saw the desolate land had become like Eden. Eden is where it all fell apart, right? That God wants to take us back to that place where we are walking hand in hand with him. The way it was always meant to be. But sin messed it up. If there's one verse in the Bible that captures the true essence of Christian salvation, this is it. And this previews the work that Jesus has been doing in the hearts of believers since his cross and his resurrection. In verse 27, it says, God says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you. Whereas they had been trying to walk in God's way and failing, God was gonna do something that would accomplish the work in them and for them. And all in this passage, there's this language of restoration, this language of redemption. From verses 24 through verse uh, 36, you can read things like, I'm gonna buy you back, I'm gonna bring you back, I'm gonna restore you, I'm gonna rebuild you. All that's redemption language. So let this be a word to anyone who settled for a version of salvation that bails out but does not buy back or build up or make better. That doesn't restore, that doesn't redeem. Let this be a movement of the spirit of God towards the heart that sees Christianity as a category. Let this be a call from heaven for anyone who believes in Jesus, but deep down you would confess that they would confess you have never experienced a change as a result of knowing Jesus. True, actual, authentic, real Christian salvation is better than a bailout better. The word in the Bible for salvation, and this is in the New Testament, the word in the Bible when you see the word saved or salvation is this Greek word. uh, So let's go to the next slide. This Greek word sozo. Sozo means to be made whole, preserved, cured, or rescued. In fact, The idea of salvation isn't just that we would be kept from falling or caught mid-fall, but that we would be pulled back up in better position so that you would not fall again. And let me go back to that slide. I had them out of order. That if your heart is still dominated by sin, if you're still being overwhelmed by struggles that you face, if you're still being overshadowed by shame, if you're still preoccupied by vanity, if you're still disabled by vices, real and authentic and true salvation that makes you whole is not just supposed to wash all this away, 
but it's supposed to help you overcome it, help you be free from it. That's the concept of redemption. When God catches us and better positions us, he heals that part of us that was prone to falling in the first place. He gives us a newfound ability, not only to avoid falling, but to make progress in the opposite and better direction. So Jesus uses that word sozo over and over again, but the apostle Paul comes along later, introduces another word to help explain what really Jesus was talking about. And it's the Greek word exaggerate exaggerazo, which is two words put together that means to purchase out of, which is what your English Bibles translates redeem, to buy back from. This is a word, of course, used all throughout the New Testament that makes it very clear that Christian salvation is a redeeming work of God. When Jesus saves us, He places us into God's hands where we are at our most valued and can be our most empowered. That when God, when we are placed into God's hands, you are put into the hands of someone who values you more than anyone in this world will ever value, more than maybe you ever have valued yourself. When God has us in his hands, we are cherished and are valued and equipped and empowered and we can reach our full potential. If you would turn over with me to Galatians chapter four, where the apostle Paul is gonna explain this very clearly to us as we wrap up. I want you to see in this passage how this connects to Ezekiel 36 so clearly. In verse four, Paul says, when the fullness of time has come, God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law. So the idea that God is working inside of time, that there's never a time when you are slipping past God's plan, that God has a schedule and he's keeping that schedule in the fullness of time. God sent forth his son. So he sent Jesus to be born in the system of the world that was enslaving everyone else. Verse five, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons or as children. And because you are sons, because you are children, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Therefore, we are no longer slaves. We are sons, we are children, we are heirs of God. So clearly, Paul says that the work that God is doing in us is a redeeming work. A redeeming work, and he connects redemption to adoption. So when God redeems us, he's buying us back from our sin. He's bringing us back to life from where sin took us by putting the spirit of God into our new hearts. So when we get saved, whether you realize this or not, we aren't just salvaged. We are in the most pure sense of the word, redeemed. In someone's hands, according to someone else's opinion, maybe based on our own opinion, our value and importance and redeemability may be in question, but not to God. God sees us as worth a great price. Jesus told a parable 
And Matthew 13 like this, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, some would say the pearl is the world, but I don't believe the pearl is the world in general. I believe the pearl represents every single one of us individually. That you and I, we are the pearls. From our vantage point, we might be marred or cracked or scratched, but in the hands of God, all of that can be cleared up. None of that is baggage or a knock against us, but rather part of the story that God is going to tell and that God is gonna leverage all of it for his story that he's gonna write through us and for us. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who went searching for a pearl. Not everyone values pearls, and this could be anything else, but not everyone values things the same way. But to God, you and I are that valuable pearl. The promise of redemption is when we surrender to the redeeming work of Jesus, he takes our past, our present, and our future and begins breathing his spirit into it. No matter how messed up your past is, God can leverage it for his glory. No matter how complicated your present is, God will show you a way to begin serving him in the mess of it all and work towards better. No matter how unknown your future is, God knows where he's taking you and it's towards life. If your understanding of salvation doesn't involve this notion of redemption, can I invite you to throw that old covenant that old religion away and come and make a new covenant with God. God's already made the covenant. He's already sent Jesus to the cross to forgive you and cleanse you and free you and empower you. The heart of stone you have that gives up quickly, that gives in easily, that wonders if you'll ever feel anything again. God promised Ezekiel and he promises you, I will give you a new heart. I will fill your heart with my spirit. I will give you a heart with the capacity and the desire to experience God. I wanna give you one last example of how God works before we have an invitation that I think hopefully all of us will take up God on this offer that he's made available to us. The writer of Galatians, the apostle Paul, Y'all know his backstory. He was an enemy of the church. He was a murderer of Christians because he thought that his way of serving God was to put to rest or put to bed the movement that was coming against his religion. He was clinging to that old covenant. So he was murdering Christians. And we'll remember, we're introduced to Paul, then going by Saul. We're introduced to him when he's consenting to the death, leading the charge against Stephen, one of the first deacons in the church. Paul didn't stop there. He began to rampage against the church, causing many in Judea to scatter and actually led to some of the first church plants outside of Judea. Acts 11 tells us, those who were scattered because of the persecution that rose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Keep that in mind. So in the meantime, you know the story. Saul gets saved. Jesus appears to him and shows him a better way. And Saul tries to find a place to worship, but nobody wants anything to do with Saul because they too, they are, they're too blinded by the man he used to be. He tries to go to Jerusalem and they say, hey, babe, maybe you should go back to Tarsus and see if you can fit in there because everybody here thinks you're still a killer. Yeah, Jesus forgives everybody, but you know, Saul, you've got a lot of blood on your hands. You murdered Stephen. Maybe you should go back home. So Saul 
goes away for a while. We don't hear about him for several years, even a decade. And then in Acts 13, here's what Luke tells us. Now there were in the church at Antioch, remember Antioch, the church that started because of persecution that scattered them. There were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menin, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch. And who is it? Saul. And the story goes that while they were worshiping the Lord, fasting, the Holy Spirit says, so not the preacher, not the deacon, not somebody in the, in, the, in the prophetic spirit, but the Spirit of God spoke, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, where are they again? Antioch the church that was planted as a result of Saul's persecution becomes the home church of Saul. Are you following me there? The church that helped inadvertently plant, that he helped plant because of his persecution against the church became a safe haven for him when he lost all of his friends and nobody accepted him. He went back home, went into the church at Antioch, the very church that he helped start as a murderer became the place that God called him and appointed him into ministry. That, in essence, is redemption. God doesn't waste anything. He redeems everything. Do you think it's a coincidence that Saul ended up in the church that he helped start as a murderer? No, the story is that so we will understand God redeems everything. Acts 13.3 says they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Someone, not only did they lay their hands on Saul, but God laid his hands on Saul. Someone whose worth was in question, whose value was doubted after all uh, that he had done was priceless in the hands of God, our Redeemer. Later on, Saul redeemed and retitled Paul. He wrote this in reflection of what God had done. I want you to listen to these words that he wrote in 1 Timothy chapter one. I thank God I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into ministry. Although I formerly was a blasphemer and a persecutor, an insolent man, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason, I obtain mercy that in me, Christ might show patience as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Did you know that God has been patient with you in your rebellion, in your sin? And he's lined all of this up for you, not to pay you back, but to win you back. And did you know that God can redeem and actually use the broken pieces you bring to him, not for you to work out, but for him. He invites us to come as we are and see him work things out. The hurt and the pain that your unchecked emotions caused, the pain that maybe an addiction caused, 
the lust that wrecked a relationship, the greed that kept you from participating in God's activity, the jealousy that broke up your family. God can take all of those things and redeem them and use you as he frees you from them. If you've trusted in God for salvation, but all you know is being bailed out, it's time to come and receive from him something better than a bailout. And that's redemption. He purchased you dent in all. He desires to restore you to a place like you've never been before. Before you got the dent, before you made those decisions, you were born with a predisposition to make bad decisions. But that's part of God's plan. Jesus paid for your sin. He paid for all of our sin. He will save you from the earthly eternal consequences. But right here, right now, he wants to redeem you for an earthly and eternal purpose. And he will give you a new heart, a new birth and a new life. Just as you were born into a life of sin, you can be reborn into a life of salvation. That's what redemption is. Religion takes you back to that same place that you stumbled from. But salvation, Christian redemption, takes you to a new place, to a better place.